The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Father, as we come to you this uh, morning virtually uh, to your word, we pray that it would reform our minds, that uh, our lives and our thinking and even our actions would be shaped by it. Lord, uh, we pray that you would challenge us so that we could become more like you and more like your son, Jesus, and, uh, and therefore glorify you. We ask for your blessing over this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Singleness is growing rapidly in the U.S. While singleness is growing, it's actually growing more slowly in the evangelical church. According to a 2016 Barna Group survey, 67% of evangelicals are married compared to 52% of all Americans and only 36% of 20-somethings. The church, we celebrate marriage. After all, it is God's command in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over it. Even more so, consider that God said later on in Genesis chapter 2 that it is not good that the man should be alone, that I will make a helper fit for him. And so God made even in Genesis 2.24, we read that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so men and women are made for each other. Marriage is really the basic building block of society. Much of our time here in the church is spent preparing for, talking about, preaching on, and counseling marriage. There are endless books written about marriage and and parenting as well. Classes and courses and videos and seminars that must seem that God's intention is for everyone to be married with perhaps the rare exception of a few who have a special gift. But is that what God says about singleness. I hope to deal with this today. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 is the lengthiest and most thorough discussion about singleness. Now, you may be saying, I'm married. What does this have to do with me? Practically, let me say that at least half of those who are married today will be single again. I know that sounds kind of morbid, but the likelihood of both you and your spouse dying at the same time is very slim. And some, of course, will separate or divorce. A less grim reason is that we are one body. Teaching on singleness impacts all of us. And lastly, and I would say most importantly, is that 1 Corinthians 7 is God's word for the whole church, not just for singles. You won't won't find a note here that says, marrieds, skip ahead to chapter 8. The next part is just for the single folk. He intends it for all of us, married, divorced, widowed, or single. Now, I'm going to be using the term single, single, singleness, and I mean those who have never married. I also mean those who have biblically divorced, and I mean those who are widowed as well. So then what does Paul really say about singleness? Well, first, he says that it's actually a gift. But what kind of gift? And who is the gift for? We'll look at both of those. What what is the gift? And who's it for? We'll answer those questions. And he writes about the benefits of singleness. And I think there are at least three unique benefits to singleness that we'll talk about and you can see in your outline. 
So with that, let's dive into our first point. I want to start by saying for many singles, singleness feels like a curse. Being single, especially for one who has never married, can feel like life is still waiting to get started. Even the phrase, settle down and get married, conveys the idea that prior to marriage, life is unsettled and and, and even unsteady. Sometimes we think singles need fixed or, or to be fixed up, but in either case, to be single is not good. But get a load of what Paul says here in verses 7 and 8. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul says singleness is not a curse. In fact, he says that it's a gift. Well, what is the gift? Is it the gift of desiring a single life? Is it a gift of not feeling lonely despite being without a spouse? Is it a spiritual gift like teaching or helps? Well, in this view, the gift is something that is kind of innate to the person, that is unique to them, a gifting that they possess. Well, that's one way to kind of think about what the gift is. The other way to think about the gift is is the status of being single itself a gift. This is the other view, that singleness itself is a gift, even if you don't feel particularly equipped or gifted for it. Most interpreters believe what Paul has in mind is actually the second interpretation. The primary reason actually comes right out of the text itself. Paul says that each person has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another, one of another. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, he's, maybe he's thinking about spiritual gifts when he says that. But, but that's actually, again, not the context of 1 Corinthians 7. If you recall, this entire chapter is about marriage. It's about singleness. It's to widows. It's to those who are betrothed. It's all about this context of marriage and singleness. And so in that context, he says both marriage and singleness are gifts. And I tend to agree. I think Paul's main concern is that those who are single, whether it be by choice or not, should see their status as a single person as a gift. But why or or even how is this a gift? If you are single and long for a spouse in the intimacy of marriage, it definitely does not feel like a gift. It feels like a a burden and, and a curse. I've heard some single folks say, I don't have the gift of singleness. And I know what they mean. They're thinking that to be gifted with singleness means to be a superhero with unique powers and and disposition to to rise above the mere mortal concerns of emotional and physical intimacy. But the reality is that's just a caricature. The truth is is that what Paul is talking about here is the nitty-gritty living of of life, of the single life, that, that the challenge of desiring a mate but not having one doesn't negate the fact that singleness is a gift. I was single for what seemed like a long time to me. It was eight years from uh, 22 to 30. And there were moments when it was very difficult, especially during those years when most of my high school and college friends were getting married. I I wondered if I would ever meet somebody that I could marry. 
So I know something of what that is like. I know that it, can, that it becomes harder as more time passes. And for the widowed man or woman, living with a mate for any number of years and then being single again is also very challenging. Over lunch at Qdoba, over at the Aspen Grove, not, not too long ago, a coworker of mine and I were talking about not being able to have children. He said that when that happens, there's, there's a certain kind of suffering that takes place. Now, it's, it's not like suffering persecution or, or illness or, or family dysfunction or abuse, but it is suffering. It's a kind of suffering. And he coined the phrase that I, I'm going to use here I really like. He called it the suffering of absence. And in this case, the, the absence of, of desi have, uh, desiring children but not having them. And I also think it fits singleness. For many, there is a very real suffering of absence. The single person longs, oftentimes, longs for a mate, but God has not provided one. There is an absence there. The, the intimacy of knowing and being known physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So I don't want to minimize the challenges of being single. I only want to point out this fundamental truth, that despite the suffering, and, what, and whether you ask for it or not, whether you desire it or not, singleness is a gift. Now, singles, if you feel this way sometimes, ask yourself this. Is it possible that God is using this suffering to make you more like himself? Christ suffered betrayal. He suffered persecutions, beatings in the cross. And Hebrews tells us that through his suffering, he was actually made perfect that his maturity and experience were deepened. He was consecrated. He was set apart by his suffering. God uses the same tools to set us apart for himself as well. And so I want to go back for a moment and address all of us in the church now. I don't think that we act or think in accordance with Scripture on this point. I think... We think that people who are single, in particular those who have never married, haven't yet started life, that they are incomplete as people, or even worse, that something might be off about them. When Christian author Rosaria Butterfield got engaged, she received overwhelming support from her church, which you would think would be beautiful. But this was despite the fact that there were serious questions about the stability of the man who uh, proposed to her. And ultimately, their engagement was broken, and God brought to her another man. She writes about it all in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Having, I think she brings a unique perspective because not only that she came out of a gay lifestyle and was new to the church, she, she, her newness to the church, I think, gave, gave her some insight here. She was in some ways an outside observer to our unique culture. And what she observed was telling. Here's what she wrote. We received overwhelming support from the church community. The support we received seems so extreme and so over the top. I've come to note that normally moderate, non-pretentious Christians tend toward emotional excess in the areas of marriage and baby showers. I found the attention uncomfortable and annoying. It seemed as though people that I thought were my friends saw me as more legitimate now that I was going to join the club of the married. 
Too often, singleness is seen as missing something, as, as someone who is incomplete. Sam Albury, Al, Albury puts it aptly. A single is unmarried, but a married person is never unsingle. So are, are married people more legitimate? Are, are they more obedient to God's call in Genesis 1.28? Well, of course we know the answer is no. But how do we act? What are our thoughts like? Look at the offices of the church. Can a single man minister as a deacon? Could he minister as an elder? If we're not sure, why don't we ask Paul? He was a single man, and he was an apostle who appointed elders. If you're still not sure, why don't we ask Jesus? He never got married. He was never intimate with a woman. He never had children. And he is the most complete person that has ever lived. He lacked nothing. He is far more legitimate than you or me. He is the definition of legitimate. He's the standard. And he was single. Now you may be saying, but he's Jesus. He's not really like you and me. He's different. And in respect to his deity, that's absolutely true. But in respect to his humanity, if he's not like you and me, then he doesn't really know what it's like to be tempted. He doesn't really know what it's like to suffer. He doesn't know what it's like to be single. And truly, the entire edifice of our faith falls apart. We must affirm both his complete deity and humanity. And when we do that, we also affirm the essential goodness and completeness of being single. I've spent so much time here because I believe this is an area where we can do better as a church. This is an area where we must allow the scriptures to reform our lives and our thinking by the renewing of our minds. Paul says here that he wishes that all were as he is, single. And that singleness, like marriage, is a gift. It's not a consolation prize. So the gift of singleness is not a special dispensation of grace given to select individuals who are gifted for singleness. Singleness itself is a gift. But who's the gift for? So let's address that question. Who's the gift for? Gifts are for the church, not the individual. And it's no different here with the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is, the, is for the church's edification, not the individual's edification. Just like the spiritual gifts are meant for the common good of the church, so also is the gift of singleness. Well, how does that work? What does that look like? Well, let's just hold on to that thought for a moment. We're going to come back to that later when we look at, at the benefits of being single. But first, we, we need to deal with what Paul says in verse 9. So let me just read for you verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul wishes that all have his gift of singleness. But he knows that for many, exercising self-control in the arena of physical intimacy is exceptionally difficult. And so he says that it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what does it mean to burn? Well, I want to keep this PG, but for all listening that have passed through puberty, you know what that means. For those who cannot control it, they should marry. In fact, our sermon series is Faithful in the Fire. If you are in the fire of these types of desires, 
it is better for you to be married. That is how you are faithful in that type of fire. Inside the covenant of marriage, this passion has a healthy and proper outlet. I've spent a good deal of time on this first point because my sense, as I said before, is that we need it. Well, let me say this. I know I need it. I need to be reminded as a, as a correction and as an exhortation. Now, I've referenced him uh, once already, but, but Sam Alberry, in his book, Seven Myths of Singleness, is an excellent resource for the church, both singles and marrieds. If you want to understand, if you want to unpack even further what the gift of singleness is all about, I cannot highly recommend that book enough. And so I want to use our remaining time to consider the benefits of singleness. What are the benefits of singleness? Paul gives us at least three different ways that I've outlined. I'm sure there are others, but at least three different ways that we're going to look at here in which remaining single is beneficial. Now, whether you've never been married or if you are widowed or if you are divorced, there is a great deal of benefit to remain as you are. Recall that that's what he calls uh, the believers in Corinth through. That's what we heard last week from Rick in verses 17 through 24. Remain as you are. So let's look at verse 25 now. And the first benefit of singleness is living for the Lord, living for the Lord. So verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, <clears throat> we don't really have a parallel for betrothal. In our culture, you're either engaged or you're married. But in uh, those cultures, in, in Jewish and Greek and Roman cultures, there was a concept of betrothal, and it, it effectively was a contract pretty much between the two families that these two people would be married. And so really it was like being married, but um, without the benefits, so to speak. And so uh, a good example would be Joseph and Mary. Uh, they were betrothed. And if you recall, uh, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he uh, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, he would have had to go through the official sort of proceedings of divorce, even though they weren't married yet, that betrothal was as serious as a marriage contract. And also note that he says, I have no, Paul says, I have no command from the Lord. And so um, what does he mean there? I have no command. Is this just Paul who's kind of, you know, talking off the cuff and he's coming up with some things and you can listen to it if you want, but it's not from the Lord. No, what he's saying is, in terms of what he knew of teaching from Jesus, there was no specific from teaching, or no specific teaching from Jesus, rather, about this particular point. And so what he's saying is, I don't have anything necessarily directly from Jesus, but I'm still speaking with the full authority of the Holy Spirit when I say these words to you. And so let's move on to verse 26, 27, and the first half of 28. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if, you, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. In verse 26, Paul talks about a present distress. Now, there's some evidence that there was a famine taking place in Corinth at this time. Some have, some have said maybe it was persecution. 
Whatever the case is, there was a situation in Corinth that gave Paul even greater impetus for his case for singleness. Here and previously in verse 8, Paul reiterates his command to remain as you are. So the status of uncircumcised or circumcised, slave or free, add to that the categories of married or single. We should remain as we are. But I really want to focus on the second half of verse 28 and then all of verses 32 through 35. So I just, again, would invite you to follow along in your Bible. Second half of verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And then skipping ahead to verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Worldly troubles, anxieties, divided interests, Wow. For all the great things that Paul says about marriage in Ephesians 5, that's kind of surprising, isn't it? But he says that the married people will have worldly troubles that come from living with another person who, who has thoughts and ideas and, and desires that are different from your own. How dare they? That spouses will be and should be anxious to please one another. That in some sense... A married person's interests will be divided between serving their spouse and serving the Lord. But let's contrast that to the single person. The single person has no such worldly trouble, has no such anxieties, and there is no division of interest. The contrast then between marriage and singleness isn't between easy and hard. I mean, each has their own challenges. And it's not between good and less good. They're both gifts, right? But it's between what's complex, that's marriage, and what's simple, singleness. Being married is more complex and thus, by necessity, diminishes energy and capacity for serving God. Being single is more straightforward and frees up the single to be more fully devoted to God. And so then, if this is a benefit of being single, that you, you have more capacity, let's say, more availability to, be, uh, to serve the Lord, to devote yourself to the Lord? What are some practical ways that singles can use their gift for the church and by extension, of course, the Lord? Well, for, here's one. I know one thing as a single person, I always felt a little bit challenged to practice hospitality. How does that work? Well, Alberry gives a really great uh, idea in his book. He says that for those who desire to exercise hospitality, hospitality but can't do to living arrangements, why not make the meal at the family's house? Go to the other person's house, at the family's house, and make the meal there for them. Or how about this? How about offer to pick up kids from school? Or watch the kids so that your married friends can go have a date night and not have to pay for a babysitter? Or, or give a week of your time off and go work at Camp Elam? Or how about this, offer to pick up and drop off senior saints before and after church or to run errands for them. Go to the grocery store, post office, etc. 
Serve in Awana. Serve in Sunday school. Serve in women's and men's ministries. A single person has more time and capacity to serve the Lord and can devote themselves more fully to kingdom work. And again, I've said this before, but a word that comes to my mind when I think about this is availability. You have more availability to serve God. But it's a two-edged sword. This availability can be used selfishly. And singles must guard against always choosing what they want to do. It's easy. You don't have to bounce any ideas off of anybody else. If you want to go out to eat, you go out to eat. If you want to watch this movie, you watch that movie. So you have to guard against that in your own life. But there's a great deal of availability there and great potential for Christ's kingdom. And so in this sense, the single person, I would say, is more like the industrious honeybee than a married person. You know, a worker bee in the hive has one purpose, to serve the hive and by extension the queen. A worker bee will make up to 12 trips a day to collect pollen and nectar. On an average trip, they stop at 50 to 100 flowers. They work almost nonstop from sunup to sundown. And when they do stop, it's for a 30-second nap and then back to work again. Now, maybe being compared to the anonymous worker bee doesn't feel very good. But let me share a little bit from C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. I think this is a good word for us. In it, he describes a scene in heaven where there is a great procession of boys and girls, musicians, and there's dancing and even angels, all leading up to a beautiful woman who appears to have very great significance. The guide says that her name, this woman's name is Sarah Smith, and that on the earth she lived an anonymous life and never had biological children. But in heaven... She is one of the great ones. And the boys and girls are her spiritual sons and daughters. The guide explains, quote, Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy who brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on who it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. I think Paul's words in verse 35 are a great comfort and encouragement to those gifted with singleness. He says this, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So that's the first benefit of singleness, that the, the ability to live more f- uh, for the Lord. Let's look at what it means to then live in freedom, the second benefit, to live in freedom. And I'll just, let me read these verses for you. Let, let God's word speak to you. If you have your scriptures open, I invite you to read verses 36 through 40 with me. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward, toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, as long as he lives, 
And if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, this is a difficult passage to interpret, and, and honestly, we don't have enough time to really dig into it here. But, and for, for example, one of the difficulties is there are questions in verse 36. Who is the anyone if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly? I looked at seven different translations of Scripture, and I got three uh, who said that it was the father of the betrothed woman, and three who said it was the man who was engaged to her and betrothed to her, who would be married to her eventually, and one that basically said they had no idea. So it's a difficult passage to interpret. Um, but, but if we're looking for the operating principle, what we see is that Paul is emphasizing that we have freedom. Freedom to get married, freedom to remain single. But we can't ignore what he says in verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now back up with me for a moment to verses 29 through 31, and let's close by looking at these verses. And read with me again, if you can, verses 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I think that Paul wrote these three verses because they were undergirding all of his response in chapter 7. Kind of like when an instructor is halfway through some teaching and it occurs to him, well, this will have much greater impact if I give my students the why behind what I'm saying. These verses are the why. And there are three concepts that I think it would be very important for us to grab hold of in these verses. The first one is this, and he says it in verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, Paul's not implying that Jesus is coming tomorrow. Certainly he could, but that's not what Paul means here. The word short here implies intensification. It implies a compression, a kind of a a pressing, a pressing together of things. Because Christ has come, died, and been resurrected, he has ushered in his kingdom, but not in its fullness or completion. Nevertheless, because his kingdom has come, life takes on new meaning with a sharper focus on eternity. Things are compressed, they're pressed together. The second concept I think it's important for us to grab hold of is note how Paul says five different times, as though. Those with with wives, as though they had none. Those who mourn, as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice, as though not rejoicing. Those who buy, as, as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings. What's Paul's point? Let us live as though the things of this world are just that, things of this world. Paul takes what he says about time being very short and compressed and intensified, 
and he makes direct application. Calvin put it like this, quote, we ought to live as if we might have to leave this world at any moment. Paul is not trying to remove the Corinthians from the world or have them renounce these things, but what he is doing is relativizing them. He's not removing, he's not renouncing, he's relativizing the things of this world. I think commentator Ben Witherington says it well, quote, everything else is of relative worth in a world that is winding down. And then the last concept for us to get, and it's all tied together, but the last is that he says the present, verse 31, the present form of the world is passing away. This means that the systems of this world, <coughs> the things that this world values and idolizes, money, power, sex, productivity, all of that is passing away. And because of this, we can remain as we are. If you are married, remain married. If you're circumcised or uncircumcised, remain uncircumcised. If you're a slave, remain as a slave. If you are single and have control over your passions, it is better to remain single. When you have eternity in mind, married and single doesn't matter as much. You see, the gospel of Jesus opens up eternity. When you come to see God for who he is, the holy creator, and yourself for who you are, a sinner, even an enemy who has rebelled against a good creator's rule, against God's rule even, you come, you should come to a place of despair. If you, if you really see these two things clearly, who God is and who you are outside of him, you're ruined. But this is why Christ came. Jesus came for you. And instead of you bearing the guilt and punishment of your sin, Christ raised his hand and said, put it on me. Put it on me. I'll take the punishment for his sin. I'll take the punishment for her sin. And when you repent and trust Christ, you are fundamentally changed. You are fundamentally changed. Your identity is no longer married, divorced, widowed, or single. Your identity is in Christ. And you are adopted into the family of God as one of his children. God becomes your true father and heaven your true home. Every day here on earth is one day closer to your true home. Eternity opens up for you. And you can be married and live as though you are not. Your spouse is not your world. Your spouse doesn't define you. Jesus does. You can be single and live as though you are not single. Your singleness does not define you. Jesus does. And living in light of eternity, you can use your gift of singleness to serve Christ and his church. You know, I titled today's sermon, An Unexpected Gift. And I think that's because for most of us, being single is an unexpected gift. I was talking to my wife, Eliza, about this, and she related a story to me that I, 
I think we'll, we'll wrap up with. She said that when she was either six or seven years old, her, her father had been laid off from a job at uh, Whirlpool Manufacturing up in uh, near Fremont, Ohio. And her parents, um, kind of knowing that the money was really tight, uh, pulled her and her brother aside and said, kids, we're sorry, but you know, money's tight uh, this Christmas. And so you know, we may not be able uh, to give you any gifts. Uh, don't expect any gifts on Christmas morning. And so, um, you know, by her telling, it took it pretty well and, and uh, you know, just kind of went on with life. And sure enough, Christmas came. But what happened on Christmas morning surprised her. She actually did have a gift, a single gift from her parents under the tree. And when she opened it, what she found was a small little gray cinch purse, and it was made of real leather. And she knew, she knew how much her parents had to sacrifice to give her this gift. And she knew uh, what it meant to them to be able to give it to her. And because of that, because of their, their sacrifice and the unexpected nature of it, she cherished it all the more. And my prayer, my hope, is for the singles in our church that they would see that Christ's sacrifice for you, not just for eternity, not just for your salvation, but for your gift of singleness, is meant for your good. With that, let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time, this uh, today, this morning, or whenever folks happen to be listening or watching. Lord, I just pray uh, for our church. I pray for our people um, who are married, um, that uh, our minds uh, would be transformed, they'd be renewed, that we would think rightly about singleness, that we would recognize it for the gift that it is, that we would teach our children even uh, about the gift that it is, that a person is complete in Christ, not by whether they're married or single. And Lord, I pray for our singles as well. I pray that, um, especially in this season, Father, of COVID-19, when we're sheltering at home and we can't get out, we're not going to work, and, and we're not coming to church, that for those the singles in particular that are living alone, I, I just pray that you would um, be near to them, that you would comfort them, that they would seek your face in the word, your word, um, that they would fill their minds with scripture and, and, and good sermons and all of the resources that are available, that, that we as a church would reach out to them and, and, and touch base, text, phone, email, um, and just know, Father, help them to know that uh, this season of, of uh, being alone won't last forever. And, Father, I just pray again for our whole church, Lord, that we would, as a church, endure well, that we would persevere. But most of all, Father, that we would just look to you to preserve us in this fire and that we would be faithful to you by your strength. In your son's name we pray, amen.